0: All right. Corey, I'm really excited about our guest today. He's someone who I've been listening to, I think, since 2010 or so, which is when his podcast, Seneca, launched, and uh, he's quite a colorful character. I hope to spend some time on his biography, which I think is underexplored in his own podcast. <laughs> he has millions of fans around the world, and sort of tangentially, we hear all kinds of things about his colorful background, but most of his podcast is focused on current affairs, what's happening in China, US-China relations. He talks to a range of people, academics, people who have been in government service, entrepreneurs, business people. So I think we'll transition more into those topics, but I actually want to start by asking Kaiser some questions about his background. Would that be okay? Sure.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: Now, I think that you and I are both part of a KMT diaspora. Is that That's true? right. Okay.
1: So you're your, your safe parents, to assume just from the spellings of our names. Yes,
0: exactly.
2: So can you tell for our listeners who aren't in the know what KMT yeah, is? I'm
0: going to explain it. So um, KMT is an acronym for the Kuomintang, which was the nationalist government of China before the communist revolution. Well, the people who lost. The people who lost and fled largely to Taiwan, and the the Taiwan the Chinese Taiwanese who were there before them refer to them a little bit as sometimes as 49ers, because there's a huge wave of them that came in 49 after the communist revolution. My mother's family were in the KMT military. My grandfather on my mother's side was a general under Chiang Kai-shek. In fact, I'm related to Chiang Kai-shek, and they went to Taiwan and set up a new government in Taiwan. And I I think from reading Kaiser's biography, perhaps his family had a similar history. So maybe you can tell us about that.
1: That's right. It wasn't military. It was actually academic and, and sort of political. My paternal grandfather was an historian. His name was Guo Tingyi, and he was actually the personal tutor to your relative, Zhang Jiechi, uh, Zhang, Zhang, Zhang Kai-shek's son, Zhang Jingguo, and also a close advisor to uh, the secret police chief, Dai Li. So he, although you know he himself would have been sort of classified as left Guomindang, he was sort of in the left-leaning intellectual camp of the, of the Guomindang, and had quite a bit of empathy for the communists, but he threw his lot in with the, the KMT and, like so many other people, left as you say in 1949. Although he actually went over in 48, he well, part of his mission was to to secure the new university grounds for the National Taiwan or Pien National Taiwan University, full of old Japanese buildings. Actually, if you, that's right. If you that's spend right. Time that's Exactly right on my mom's side you said uh, that was your my, my mom's side also a uh, similar situation my maternal grandfather was a sort of internal diplomat to one of the uh, the powerful northern warlords his name was Feng Yuxiang known as the Christian general for uh, it's a possibly apocryphal story but he supposedly baptized his troops with a fire hose before sending them into battle big tall guy with a gigantic bald head uh, anyway my my Maternal grandfather uh, had studied in Germany after Chiang Kai-shek defeated his boss in the Plains War of of 1930. He uh, went to Germany for a while, came back, met my grandmother, and she went on to become a senator from the province of Henan in Taiwan after the the flight to Taiwan.
0: It's amazing to think that uh, your grandparents and my grandparents, at least on my mother's side, probably knew
1: each other. Oh, they absolutely knew each other there's no question uh who was your 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 grandfather general he was actually a his his last name family
0: name was Zhang, and uh-huh. uh, that family traces its history back to
1: um shandong province so they're from the north originally of course i would have guessed shandong all all the, all the military who went to taiwan are from shandong
0: yeah and he actually studied at a japanese military academy the same one where chen kai shek studied in japan and so He rose to the rank of general, and then, amazingly, he was actually an admiral. I guess they had a navy in Taiwan, so he was actually in charge of the navy in Taiwan for a brief while. Wow. And the family story is that he was too upright, uh, because that side of the family had been converted to Christianity, I think 150 or more years ago, and he was too upright and wouldn't take bribes. (laughs) my mom recounts a story of him chasing someone had brought him a bribe with money hidden in a cake and he chased the guy into the street and made him take the cake back (laughs) of of course you know someone like that has no future in government or politics so anyway so he ended up uh, immigrating to los angeles which is where my mother and father met
2: so so kaiser we we've heard about your grandparents where did your parents grow up and Can you lead us into your story?
1: Sure. My folks were both born in mainland China, starting with my my father's side of the family. He uh, was actually born in Henan province when my my grandfather, the historian, sojourned for a little while in the provincial capital then of Henan province, the city of Kaifeng. And my father was born there. Born, in fact, in in a Jewish ghetto, interestingly enough, on a street called Hutong, which meant the alley where they pick the tendon out of the meat, which was apparently some sort of dietary restriction that was observed by what was thought to be this odd sect of Muslims, which in fact were Jews. He didn't live there long. He grew up mainly during the war in the city of Chongqing, what we used to know as Chongqing. Uh, That was the wartime capital. Uh, And so he he grew up running to air raid shelters on almost a nightly basis, carrying my grandfather's manuscript, whatever he was working on. And His little brother on his back. He grew up there, went to Taiwan again, of course, with with the rest of the family. Stayed there until the mid nineteen fifties. So he finished high school and his undergraduate degree there in Taiwan. Then he went to the U S. in nineteen fifty six after spending a year in military service. It was obligatory. Went to the U S. where he did a master's degree in mechanical engineering at the Ohio State University. There he met my mom. My mom had come over. She was uh, she's six years younger. She had come over to the U.S. for her undergraduate degree, and they met in Ohio. My mom was uh, at some little Catholic school called, you know, Our Lady of Intolerable Suffering or something like that. They got they got married in Berkeley. My dad went to uh, first to Stanford. His advisor was sort of a peacenik. Uh, didn't like doing defense research. Went to Berkeley with the other peaceniks. My my father got his doctorate there in '60 yeah 61 i think and got married then took a, a job at IBM in upstate new york where all the kids were born
2: so, so i want to ask this one question about the jewish ghetto this is these are chinese jews or these are that's correct i didn't i wasn't aware that there were significant numbers of there
1: are there are, there are several pockets of them um, this is the oldest group they came over apparently during the sung dynasty there were there there's some some legend that says there were earlier groups of, of jews who came to china But the Song Dynasty lasted from the 10th to the 13th century. They must have come in the earlier part of the Song Dynasty when Kaifeng itself was the capital. They weren't really discovered and sort of outed as Jews until some Talmudic scriptures were discovered by Jesuits who had been in China during the 18th century. So it wasn't quite until quite a bit later that they were sort of discovered.
2: Do they still exist as a community?
1: They still, well... It's really hard to say. There were a lot of people who who called themselves Jews. There was a guy uh, for a while in the late '90s um, who who styled himself Moisha Jong, handing out <laughs> business cards. You know, and sort of he, he he you know sort of the curls, the side curls, the whole affect. There was no evidence to suggest that he was actually Jewish, but he knew how to make money from the tourists. He had a, a business card that he'd hand out that said Moisha Jong, Jewish Diaspora. That's all it said on it. Wow, and this photo very
0: number. entrepreneurial.
1: Yeah, very entrepreneurial. So. <laughs> I think you grew
0: up in Tucson, Arizona. Is that right? I
1: did. That's correct. That's correct. I was uh, in New- upstate New York until I was twelve. I moved to Tucson, Arizona at at the age of twelve. Yeah.
0: So can you tell us a little bit about your family, your upbringing? Were you kind of a typical ABC family?
1: Did you did you speak Mandarin at home? Well, my folks tried to you know teach us Mandarin. My father was pretty stubborn about it. Uh, my mom less so. He would stand up at the whiteboard next to the kitchen table and constantly say, you know, and then he would, you know, the Chinese have a saying that says, and then he would write some obscure idiom, uh, which we'd all, you know, sort of, you know, marvel at for a while at at the the succinctness of it, how terse and pithy these things were, and then promptly forget them. But we spoke what we call kitchen Chinese, which is, you know, Probably what you had, Steve, I mean, just, you know, ordinary nouns and verbs, just a a really simple syntax wrapped around an equally simple grammar, yeah.
0: Yeah, I'm very curious about this whole thing, because in my generation, almost everybody failed to learn Chinese, and maybe often picked it up later on in college if they did. My wife and I are working really hard to keep my kids bilingual, and it's much easier now because there's lots more media for them to consume in Mandarin, and also other kids that speak. Mandarin, or you can fly to Asia for the summer and immerse them with their relatives or something. You have a kind of Beijing accent, I think, so did you did you sort of pick that up later in life, your influence? I in- did.
1: I guess, well, you know, you talk about the media and the influence that it has. The media that that I was surrounded with outside of my proper Chinese school, which was taught by, you know, mostly people like you, 49ers, people who'd left the mainland in 49, the other material that I had was brought back from the mainland, from Beijing, by my father, who took his first trip there in 1975. So he had these, you know, records that were literally printed on red-colored vinyl, and all these propaganda films. And I loved the Beijing accent. I, I thought that it just sounded, my idea of what proper Chinese should sound like. So that's what I sort of aped as I learned Chinese. I think it's kind of funny, because it would be sort of like somebody you know, an Italian guy <laughs> learning a Brooklyn accent as right. his preferred accent or a Boston accent. But yeah, that's that's what I'm saddled with now. And I'm, I'm you know, kind of stubbornly proud of it.
0: <laughs> now, you, you actually were on the academic track for some time. Is that right? So you were an undergrad at that's Berkeley right. and then graduate school at University of Arizona. Was it in East Asian Studies? That's right. It was in
1: East Asian Studies. I dropped out.
0: <laughs> yeah. So tell tell us a little bit about that because you're this is already another really unusual part of your background. So you went from I think graduate student in a very kind of very academic area to I think heavy metal rock band lead singer. Yeah.
1: yeah. There was a little bit of heavy metal rock band before graduate school, and that's sort of what explains my my recidivism and dropping out of graduate school. I finished at UC Berkeley. I was pretty intent on on pursuing an academic career at that point, but I was also intent on pursuing the possibility of playing rock in China. I just sort of knew that would be fun. It would be a story I could dine out on for years afterward, no matter what happened. I mean, no matter how farcical the whole thing was. And it was pretty farcical. When, when I was in college, I played in a great band and we were invited to go to China to play. And it actually fell through on our end. It was our fault that it fell through. Uh, we couldn't scrape up the money that we needed just for the airplane tickets and to move our gear over there. They were going to take care of Care of us once we landed. That was in 1987. We were supposed to go, so that would have been uh, the summer between my junior and senior year of college. So senior year, the band broke up. You know, we couldn't we couldn't survive because I was so embittered because really it was one guy's fault who couldn't meet his end of our of our obligation. And so I I just had this idea. I'm going to do that. I'm going to go to China and I'm going to play rock and roll. Uh, so that's exactly what I did as soon as I graduated. But, uh, you know, I brought my GRE prep materials with me. I was thinking, I'll spend a year, maybe a couple of years in China. Uh, toward the end of my first year, of course, the Tiananmen incident happened, uh, resulting in the massacre of June 4th. And so I kind of went tumbling out of China, not yet having taken the GREs, not yet having, uh, you know, done my grad school applications. And so all I could do was go home to where my parents lived. I didn't have a place in Berkeley anymore. I mean,
2: Tiananmen Square was a huge event for... You know, me and my friends <laughs> in small town New England, actually. Sure. And sure. so I'm I'm really curious as to w- what were you doing around that time? What did you see? Yeah,
1: well, I was in the square a lot of it. So two things were happening, and it was a really strange parallel existence. One was that we were this was my best friend from college, and I we we were starting Tong Dynasty, this band that went on to become quite quite well known with the two you know, legendary names in, in Chinese rock now. This guy was my, my best Chinese friend, Ding Wu, uh, and another friend of ours, Zhang Zhu, uh, who was the bass player. So the four of us were holed up in this little hotel on the far north side of Beijing where we had run of this disco during the day. We could just sort of, we set up our gear there every morning and just played all day, writing material, working on material. And then we'd, we'd make our way back into the city and go down to the square and see what was happening. Some days we'd take a day off and just just spend it, basically talking to people in the square, just seeing what was happening. In the evenings, we would, as as we called it back then, go to the west side and wait for the tanks. We just sort of knew inevitably this was going to get crushed, and it went on for so damned long, with uh, in, in a complete state of stalemate. We left Beijing to go on tour with this band on the morning of June 3rd, about 16 hours before the, the gunfire erupted, and I didn't know until the morning of the seventh. That there had been a massacre, and I, I was just completely just shocked by it. I mean, I had left Beijing still in a complete state of stalemate. It was a real, obviously, it was a huge turning point in my life, and it was for I mean one reason in particular, and that is this: that while watching what was unfolding, even though I I could I could understand Chinese, I could speak rudimentary Chinese, and I sort of knew the broad outlines of what was happening, but it was very clear to me that there was this whole Other story unfolding that I was not privy to, that it was happening in this deeply culturally conditioned semantics that were were unfamiliar to me. There was like these sort of symbolic idioms that were being bandied about by everybody that I was clueless to. I've likened it in the past to watching Peking opera and not knowing that that guy on stage with all the flags on his back is supposed to represent a general standing in front of an army. Or that the guy carrying this little stick with red tassels on it was supposed to be riding a horse, just not understanding the symbology, and so the, all the you know the, the semiotics were mysterious, and I knew there was something happening. So that's really Steve. What launched me on my academic career was just I am going to figure out what the hell it was that I was just witness to.
2: So, Kaiser, when you talk about these idioms, you mean phrases people were saying, or acts oh, no. people were performing, or performing. Ca- okay
1: can, can you give an example of yeah so for example you know we, we saw a lot of people wearing uh, these white headbands on their heads and they had you know characters written on them you know they, they would say you know things like dare to die for this or what whatever there were there was all this sort of death cultish stuff I didn't understand it I didn't understand the Buddhist for example symbology of the circumambulations around the the monument to the people's martyrs. I didn't understand the whole, you know, many of the tableaus that I, I was able to see of people, you know, holding up petitions over their head while kneeling on the steps of the the Great Hall of the People, for instance. I didn't understand why certain pronouncements from the government so deeply incensed people and why it seemed to shift so quickly from what seemed to me a, a very uh, reasonable, uh, movement that still very much cloaked itself in the language of patriotism, of of a loyal opposition to one that was so quite overtly oppositional, and that's what I, I set out to figure out.
0: I'm curious whether, so after going back and, you know, trying to understand what you had seen from the perspective of, I guess, Tucson, the University of Arizona, did it work? Like, were you actually able to kind of decipher a lot of these things from that vantage point?
1: Well, I think I was. And, and thankfully, there were a lot of other people on the case, and I was reading them, and I, I found many of their interpretations and analyses very, very persuasive. I think there were a lot of people sort of on that same mission uh, that I was on. Uh, I ended up latching onto one specific element of it, but not before for my master's thesis. I had sort of come up with a grand interpretation. I am somebody who I, I've talked about this many times on the show. I really sort of believe that to understand politics in China, the key is to understand the relationship between the pen and the sword, between the intelligentsia and those who actually wield, you know, who have a monopoly on, on political violence, on the, the the leadership. And I posited that there are sort of these four modes of that relationship, uh, that one is largely fictional and ideal. ideal. It's, it's a mode of identity where the pen is the sword. It's this idea of this You know the sage king, right? The philosopher king, uh, where the literati, the intelligentsia, has one of their own, uh, somebody who's entirely sympathetic to, to their beliefs, to their, their moral system, on the throne. The second, I think, is the most interesting. It's this mode I, I hinted at, you know, of loyal opposition, wherein these intellectuals have kind of tacit access to channels of consultation with political authority, where they're able within quite circumscribed but still quite real space. They're able to remonstrate. They're able to make known their moral objections to some of the policies. They're able able to make their criticisms heard. And those criticisms are supposed to be taken on board respectfully and actually acted on. Now, this maybe describes most of Chinese history or is maybe the most typical mode. I don't think it's unique to China, but I think that its particular expression in China is 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 very distinct. A third mode is one where they decide, they throw down the script, and they go into opposition, into sort of direct opposition with political authority, and they compete for the loyalties of the other segments of society, the military, for example, or the peasantry, or what have you, the ordinary working class folks. And finally, there's a, a mode that you might call eremitism, where they just say, screw it, we're going to go frolic in the bamboo grove naked and drink, you know, hot wine and and write poetry and, and play our zithers. I've seen that, actually. I think we might kind of be in, in there's such a thing happening right now, If you, to, to jump ahead a bit, but it's it's interesting. I think that I came up with this as, like, what, a 24-year, 25-year-old, and I, I still kind of think that it describes pretty well the, the modalities of Chinese politics, or the, of the relationship between intellectuals and the state. Do
0: you, do you think it was a transition into Mode 3 that caused the Tiananmen
1: crackdown? I think it was Mode 2 up until the, the end of, of April, and there was quite a sudden sort of lurch into Mode 3, yeah. That's, that's what I ended up sort of writing about specifically. I want to say that, you know, having
0: traveled to China in the early 90s — I don't think I was there in the late 80s — but it was really rough then, okay, in terms of the standard of living or even having sidewalks or having toilets that worked and I sure. probably remember all this stuff. One of the most kappa things that I experienced was when I visited Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah frightening yeah. things, overwhelming things, was I visited Hong Kong, which was, you know, obviously a developed modern city, but I wanted to see the special economic zone, which now has become Shenzhen, but at that time was very, very rough. And I didn't want to go to Guilin and see these ancient, beautiful Chinese things. I, I really wanted to see what is capitalism and, you know, development in China look like. So I got on a tour bus and went in across the border into that special economic zone, and I couldn't believe what I was seeing because there were skyscrapers that had gone up with no sidewalks, and there were dirt roads where there was snarled traffic for two hours at a time. It was just un- unbelievable what was happening there. Yeah, very uneven development. <laughs> yeah, uneven development and rapid development. And I think you lived through all this. I mean, you were in China through most of that time and looking at it as a kind of academically trained Westerner who spoke Chinese. So you're, I think it's a very unique perspective that you have.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for having had a front row seat to that. And it's hard. It's really hard to get, get it across to anyone. I think, you know, there we, we all rely on some numbers. We look at like, well, let's, let's look at per capita GDP. 40 years ago it was 175 bucks a person I mean 175 dollars and today it's what it's edging up on 99 thousand two hundred dollars right it's just I think that's like 150 times or something like that it's 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 a it's a nutty difference it's just it's hard to to, to appreciate where were you living in China when you were they in Beijing
2: all the time or were you moving around the country during your years I was in, now? in Beijing we
1: we toured I mean we, usually when I traveled it was you know, either a weekend trip with a girlfriend somewhere, or it was with the band on tour in some in some city. There were later in life, you know, there were you know, the occasional business or reporting trips, but for the most part, I I only saw China from some very strange vantage points. Now, I saw places that most people have never heard of, which was a lot of fun. But I have to say, I mean, I I do regret having sort of been planted for too much of my time in in China. In the city of Beijing, which is by no means representative of, of, of the country, but I'm sure when you were touring, you saw some pretty backwater places. I did, I did. But again, you know, you don't you don't get a whole ton of time. You don't get to sit down and really pick people's brains and and you know be anthropological about it at all. You're seeing it just sort of from stage. You're you're given VIP treatment. You're put up in the nicest place they have in town to offer. They're feeding you you know their local delicacies, and so yeah, it's it's a very different experience. My
0: poor man's way of doing anthropology in China is that when I travel there, I always make it a point to talk to the cab drivers and the maids who work... You and Tom t- Friedman, yeah. Well, okay. So, okay, man. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but I actually speak enough Mandarin that I can probably get a little bit more out of them than Tom Friedman. Right, yeah. But you get a sense of what people are thinking, I think,
1: uh, in those moments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, cab drivers especially. I mean, I, the ones in Beijing are... I think they're a national treasure. Those guys, I mean... They can really talk a real blue streak of how the mighty screw the meek, they're very good on that.
0: The most insulting thing that I've had said to me is, you know, you know I'm speaking Chinese to them but they're, they're trying to figure me out, they can't quite figure out, <laughs> and they'll usually guess that I'm Korean or Japanese before they'll guess that I'm a Chinese American. They'll say, what right. are you, you know, your accent is so bizarre. Are you a, are you a <laughs> Japanese, are you a Japanese businessman? <laughs> so anyway, it's, I've been insulted. You can't insult me any more than those guys have insulted me.
1: <laughs> but I could. But <laughs> no, they're, they're, I, I know exactly what you mean. And, and a lot of people of our heritage endure that. Uh, there are worse things in the world. I mean, you know, to be, I, if I found other people who, you know, uh, really hate being mistaken for for local and others who who want nothing more than to be mistaken for local. I sort of fall into that, that latter category. I, I'm always hoping that I'll be able to fool the cab driver. I think that I can speak well enough so that if I'm not in his rearview mirror and he can't see my weird range of facial expressions and my body language, if I just keep it purely verbal, I can convince him that I am a Beijinger and maybe I spent a few years abroad and lost some of the the authenticity of my accent, but that's about it. I'm basically a Beijinger.
0: You know, I'll, I'll mention a psychological experience which I think all Asian Americans experience, and this this happened to me even not just when I was in China or the Sinosphere, but when I was in say Korea or Japan. I could get on a subway, and you know, unless I was dressed very strangely compared to the locals no one would look at me twice i could just yeah. feel a solidarity or oneness with all the other people in the train car even though they were japanese or korean and i wasn't but in america if i get on a train car you know i'm i might be the odd one maybe not in new york city or something but i might be the odd one out and it's just a different feeling which i experienced for the first time when i first traveled to those countries
1: yeah i can't say i've actually felt it i mean every i mean my my whole time there has been spent Looking very odd compared to the ordinary <laughs> people. So, I can pass for a salaryman, right? I, 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 I quite can't quite. <laughs> <laughs> I had almost this
2: almost identical experience being in Cameroon a couple oh, of yeah. decades ago. I was walking around with this Italian friend of mine, and I realized we're walking to the market, and it was the first time I was with somebody, and one of us was being stared at, and it wasn't me, and it was awesome. just it was a singular <laughs> feeling, right, of just being totally invisible, yeah. watching, you know, my like, friend just y- get.
0: You know, even though you maybe didn't speak the local language, you're like, man, I can just chill and nobody's going to... As long as I don't do anything exactly, yes, that right. gives it away, no one's going to look twice at me.
2: But what's shocking is, is is fascinating watching both people look at him yes, and watching his reaction being looked at. You know, he's a pretty chill guy in the whole. In fact, hope, hopefully we'll have him on the podcast soon. But uh, yeah, just the sense of, of people looking at a foreigner. Kind of seeing it is almost from a third person perspective. <laughs> uh, it, it's really it's. Yeah, I, I wish yeah. everyone could have that experience. Actually, of a lot of white Americans have that experience of being someplace yeah. and being a little bit out of
1: place. What I get all the time here traveling around the U.S. is I'm mistaken for a Native American uh, before, especially before I had facial hair at all. Uh, this is my Trump resistance facial hair. But when I uh, before that, yeah, constantly being mistaken for Native American. I mean. Either by well-intentioned people, you know, I don't mean nothing by this, but what tribe is you? That kind of thing, or I'd get, or I'd get like some redneck just going, you know, hey chief, fill her up. What well, can I get you, chief? And I, I, I was thinking, chief, is that like you know, hey Hefe or hey you know Lobot or whatever? It, no, it was definitely chief, as in like Indian chief or whatever.
2: <laughs> so here's my Kinda favorite funny. bit of political, as my favorite political question that I'd ask people after the Trump election. Which ethnic group voted most for Donald Trump?
1: You mean as a pr- pr- proportion of the a proportion, ethnic
2: group? A portion of that. Was it Was it Chinese Americans? No, it was Native Americans. Oh, Native
0: Americans, okay.
1: Really? They wow. voted
2: because of the America First policy. They didn't want immigration. They kind of saw...
0: Well, they know. ...the effect
2: know. of immigration. So it's really it was ironic, right, given that, you know, how, you know, they're being viewed by many Trump supporters, but they sort of saw uh, immigration as something that didn't help them out. Right. So, so Kaiser, I just want to push a little bit on the sort of rock star moving around China during China's development. it's It's a very strange perspective to have. So who are you talking to at the time? Are you talking to officials? Are you talking to other rockers fans, yeah. fans? Yeah. Who's, your, who's your peer group at the time? Who are you getting information from? What do you say? Yeah, it, it was a
1: strange so uh, there was sort of a real clear dividing line. I think prior to 99, uh, most of my friends were, were Chinese people, and most of them were, yeah, people either in the rock community. I mean, there were some people who I had known sort of from my brief sojourn in school there. I was officially enrolled in a university, so I had some expatriate friends, but most of them were were Chinese, Chinese guys, uh, Chinese women. And the art scene was pretty unified back then. So, You'd know a lot of people from the film academy, from the drama academy. You'd know a lot of, of visual artists and then rock musicians, jazz musicians, you know, in all the performing arts. And I guess that was mostly the people that I knew. So these are not people who were really deeply representative of, of ordinary folks. But uh, what was great was, you know, you'd go home to their families and their families were entirely ordinary <laughs> Uh, you'd, you'd go eat dinner and you'd meet their you know their brother or their their sister or you know any number of cousins and there and you know those are people who I think are kind of more useful interlocutors for understanding what was going on did you find that
2: people in the arts community had different perspectives than yeah very
1: much so yeah I mean I think that you know they they are look uh especially when deciding to sort of opt out of mainstream society and to be part of that community uh required such an act of personal courage i mean it, it on the one hand the 80s were extraordinarily liberal so it was possible to do a lot of these things but on the other hand there was a lot of inertia you had to overcome there was a lot of social inertia and sort of cultural inertia you had to overcome to decide i am not going to to, to opt for that ordinary path of you know going to school taking the college exam going to a vocational training school and then working the job that I'm assigned instead to say, no, I'm going to learn to play the drums, I'm going to learn to play guitar, I'm going to learn to sing like a banshee, and I'm going to, you know, to be a rocker. It was a completely different set of people. So I don't pretend that I had any kind of an ordinary uh you know sort of ground level view. But what I do think I did come into contact with were a lot of people who were ordinary educated people who were Uh, ordinary intellectuals. I did have some friends who were sort of among the more prominent dissident intellectuals who we know a lot more about in the States, but I did have a lot of friends who who I would consider to be just sort of ordinary intellectuals, and those are people whose perspectives I think we really need to understand. So... At some point in your time there, and
0: you were you were sort of continuously after you left graduate school, you were in sort of continuously in Beijing for a long time, is that right? Yeah, twenty years. (laughs) Twenty years. And some at some point in that time you made a transition from rocker to, for example, guy who works at Baidu.
1: Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? It's 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 not as strange as as it sounds. There's a a really kind of there's one weird leap, which was in ninety nine when I quit the band. I quit the band in the sense that you know I broke up with you before you could break up with me because you know it was clear that I wasn't welcome. so let's make that let's make that clear uh, When I quit, I basically went home that night and did this mental kind of catalog. okay, so what am I gonna do after this? I can go back and and, and pick up where I left off on my dissertation. I can uh, you know try to reinvent myself I can start a new band. And then I just, just sort of decided that, look, you know, one thing that I can do, I, I can speak and read Chinese, and I, I'm a good writer. I've had some academic training. I went to a good school. I, I can become an editor for one of these new websites. It was still kind of fairly new word in '99. Uh, the internet was on fire in China. There were all these people wanting to start companies, and I knew I would be able to get a job doing something like that, and that it would interest me. I had been tasked with you know, building a, a primitive website for the band. So I knew a little HTML. And, you know, I, I, my dad was an IBM. I was around technology all my life. Nothing intimidated me. So I went for it. Um, and I, I closed my computer that night thinking, I'm going to, tomorrow morning, I'm going to apply to a bunch of webs, you know, these internet companies. But before I could even, you know, finish my scrabbled eggs in the morning, the, the, the phone rang and it was basically a job offer out of nowhere. Uh, from a guy who's, you know, a very, very well-known media figure uh, who had invested in an internet company and was looking for an editor-in-chief for their English side and for some reason thought of me. And I, I took that. It was it was marvelous. It was a company called Chinanow.com. And, uh, it, you know, it died in 2002. But uh, for those three years, it was just marvelous, marvelous fun. So from there, it was really easy to transition since I was, in a quote-unquote technology company that was doing editorial, it's very easy to, to then become a reporter writing about the burgeoning tech industry in China. So that was like sort of a, a real seamless transition. I started uh, freelancing a bunch and then eventually got a gig writing for a pretty well-known Silicon Valley publication as bureau chief uh, for China that was called Red Herring. Do you guys remember Red sure, Herring? Sure, sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah, of course. I, I ran a startup during that first bubble, and of course, <laughs> yes. Red Herring, in... during the peak of the bubble, was a thick magazine because That's of all the right. advertising, and then as the bubble burst, that became a very thin magazine, and then no magazine at all.
1: That's right. I was during the sort of the thin-to-no transition period, and it was it was terrible. I mean, it was a great brand that was run to the ground by just incompetent management. By one, I mean, by the, the publisher, he was just absolutely terrible. We all hated him. In fact, I just ran into in New York last week, and we were reminiscing, uh, as we always do, about how much we hated that bastard. <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs> you know, all, uh, all these great things are often very fragile. You know, they can they only really survive are. under certain circumstances, and then that's it. So
1: once you're once you're an established tech writer, then suddenly all the internet companies want to hire you as their communications director, because they figure, hey, you know how to... You're buddies with all the other tech writers, so therefore, you'll help, you know, s- just Sort of soften the coverage of us, and so finally, finally I succumbed to that the, the temptation, and I, I first went to Yoku and then to Baidu. So during that time, I you
0: know so from listening to your podcast, and I, I I think I probably have listened to hundreds of your podcasts. If if you've made hundreds,
1: I have yeah four four or five hundred yeah. yeah.
0: So you know I get a sense of you as actually an intellectual with pretty deep interests. And so was your internal monologue during that time, yeah, I'm working for the man, I have a family now, but, you know, I I could tell you never lost your inner curiosity about things. Yeah,
1: and and they didn't want me to. I mean, I think that my whole pitch to them was that, look, you know, you can hire some guy who's worked for a PR agency and just sort of knows, you know, by the book PR, or you can hire me, who's somebody who journalists might actually enjoy having lunch with for an hour a week. You know, you can hire me, who's somebody who, you know, might be able to sort of think more creatively about some of the communications challenges that we have. I think they—they they made. I think they, yeah, they they they, they bought it. They bought it. They and bought were you
0: always idea. in the English-facing role, or were, was your Chinese actually good enough to actually have the Chinese media-facing role as well? Oh no, no, no. I, it
1: was definitely. It would. I think I would have been okay enough to do that. It's just different animals completely. Um, I, I I kind of don't even want to know what the Chinese facing side of of P, PR for any of these companies has to do because it's you're really in the mud with the the other you know sort of mud dwelling animal. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yep.
0: you might have to spend a lot of time at a well maybe not anymore since they clean it up. But for a while you probably to spend a lot of time at a KTV or something with the.
1: It would have been that yeah that 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 sort of thing. And I, I mean my liver and and my conscience probably neither could have really taken it.
0: Do you know what KTV is? I don't know. It's funny because it sort of can mean karaoke, okay, but in the early rough days in China, it could literally mean a brothel, like you're going to a brothel where a bunch of business the guys- The same thing, right, Yeah, right. are basically- So you, know, you would
1: have these hostess girls come in and they'd have numbers, that you'd pick which ones, you'd bring them into the room with you, and then they'd all, you know, sort of, everyone would get drunk, and then some clothing would come off, and this would, and it was just, eh, not my thing, no. So this
2: is sort of the picture I think many Americans have of after-hours Japanese business world.
1: Uh, yeah, it's learned from that.
2: Okay. Is it still exist, or
1: has it changed much? It's changed a lot. Um, you know, I mean, it's Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign has taken a lot of that out. Yeah, that's just, the, in, the, in the provinces, yeah, I think there's still a lot of drinking, you know, and probably those, you know, visits to the sauna or the what, what have you, the sort of boys bonding stuff, but. There's considerably less of it than there was back then
0: really changed I think over a period of maybe five years from really unbelievable like you check into a business hotel and they would be running like the equivalent of like a brothel on the top floor or something to it just doesn't exist anymore so right. for that maybe she gets some credit I don't know <laughs> right
2: it, it's interesting because there's a you know I'm, I'm very much a non-expert in regards to China I've been to Hong Kong twice. But I've heard different things about she's uh, anti-corruption campaign. I've heard some people claim it's score-settling, some people claim it's fully legitimate. Uh, it sounds like it's clearly a
0: little bit of both. Kaiser's the expert, but...
1: Yeah, well, I, I'm not the expert, but there is an expert, and his name is Peter Lorentzen at the University of San Francisco, and he's just published an excellent paper which looks at exactly this, this question. Well, first of all, I mean, more than 630,000 people have been disciplined now. That includes something like 120,000 who have been expelled from the party or uh, actually jailed. Uh, usually, it, it both happen together. Nobody has 630,000 scores to settle. That's just, I don't care how big, you know, how many friends you have on Facebook or whatever. You know, there, there's just nobody. So it, it's it's obviously not possible. At the same time, as Peter's uh, study has shown, sees inner circle, these people who are, you know, around him, people who he's close to, have not been touched. So there's clearly some uh, personal touch going on in there. I mean, he's his own personal people have been left alone while uh, around him, you know, literally hundreds of thousands have gone down. It's one of those, those things where it's pretty hard to, to, to imagine having been a ranking bureaucrat in, in China during the 90s and the 2000s without getting some stink on you. Almost everyone's got a little bit. It's like being a Hollywood producer and not having some Me Too something in the closet. Or a New York real estate developer. Exactly, exactly.
0: So, okay, I guess we've transitioned a little bit away from Kaiser's life story and more into China proper. Great, which, thank God. <laughs> uh, I want to I wanna advertise your podcast again, because I think it's one of the best places where you can hear people who really know what they're talking about discussing these issues in, in depth, I would say. Tell us a little bit about your ID behind the podcast. What's your, What's which, which been your goal with it?
2: And what do you think, you, how long has it been going on for?
1: Yeah, Corey, that's a that's a, a great question. Uh, it's been going on now for, so we started April of 2010. So we're close to our ninth anniversary. The podcast was really the brainchild of Jeremy Goldcorn and me. We were two guys kicking around Beijing, both of us with a lot of interest in media, a lot of interest in in current affairs in China. Both of us had sort of, Uh, large networks within the journalist community, large networks within the NGO community, within the business communities. And we thought we would just convene a little conversation that would be like a a dinner conversation uh, that was a little more structured than that, where we'd have a couple of topics we'd go through like we're doing right now, just sort of rapping about interesting stuff. I kind of, by default, fell into the host position. And we just said, hey, let's just try this and see what happens. It happened that we had this friend who was running podcasts uh, for a Chinese language learning business that he had started. So he had mics and and, and digital recorders and and, uh, was he had volunteered to edit for us, to produce the thing, to put it out. And all we had to do was come up with guests and come sit sit for an hour and and, and yammer. So uh, we, we did that. Corey doesn't realize, but we're inspired by your
0: podcast, and he's Jeremy Goldcorn and I'm Kaiser Guo. <laughs> so you'll have to look up who Jeremy uh, yeah, Goldcorn oh, is.
1: Could, could be fun who I am actually. So Jeremy is a, a real character. Uh, he's a, a guy who's born in South Africa from you know, Johannesburg. Uh, you know his surname's Goldcorn, so you can sort of guess the ethnic derivation of that. But grew up as English, not, not afrikaans speaking, uh, white South African. Uh, left right around the time of apartheid's collapse, and spent a year. Oh, well, he spent a long. You know, he was he was Christ. He's kicking around for a while. He biked all over the place, and he ended up uh, in in China, beginning in ninety four or ninety five, I think, and was there for twenty years. And we so we knew each other really well. He is unlike me. I mean, he, he, we're we're very very different. He's kind of anti academic. He hates even even words like discourse. Or uh, problematic, or especially if it's used as a noun, the problematic. Oh, I too. I like this guy. I told you, you're Jeremy Goldgourch.
2: Be banished from the lexicon. Exactly. So exactly. pretentious.
1: No, I, I agree with that. Um But you know, he 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 takes it to kind of often very amusing extremes. Uh We the dynamic on the show has always been so. He's usually way more. uh Oh, we just let's. Get past these bollocks, Kaiser, and get to the meat of the question here. And I'm usually the one who who's a little more indulgent and, and wants to you know do more context and splash on more nuance. And and he he often likes to sort of you know we need moral clarity here. This is just bollocks, don't you? So it works. It works pretty well. And I think the secret to the show has been that you know people want a little bit of an adversarial dynamic somewhere. And since we never do it with a guest, we always bring on guests that we're going to be polite to and. and i ask softball questions, too, but we're not going to antagonize them. And and Jeremy and I antagonize one another instead. <laughs> uh, he's one of my very best friends in the world, so uh, it's all in good fun. But both of us, I think, have drifted toward the center more, and maybe we need to, to reinvigorate the argumentative dynamic a bit on the show.
0: <laughs> Perhaps coincidentally, you both ended up now living in the American South. Is that right? You've both come back? Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. I don't think it's entirely accidental. I think that, you know, he was he was saying it's virtues enough that, that it started to sink in. And I I uh, started just talking to other people who were living in the South. And I, I'm very, very pleased that I decided to live in North Carolina for, for just a whole bunch of different reasons. How, how much does this have to do with the difficulty of raising children in Beijing? It wasn't the difficulty. I think in many ways, raising children in Beijing is easier. Uh, for one thing, you have, you know, really affordable and excellent... You know, nannies. Who, who, if you if you want them. My my wife was very anti nanny. She thought it all it would teach them sort of you know inegalitarian habits of mind, which was I think she's right. But in many ways, it is easier. People talk about the pollution, of course, and that was bad, but getting better already by the time we left, and it was clearly on a trajectory toward good. It wasn't the politics. It wasn't it, for us. It was just simply we have this kind of belief about pedagogy that says. You know, let children be children before they start school. When they're in elementary school, ride them pretty hard. Make them disciplined. Teach them a ton. There's sponges then. Just, just teach them a whole bunch of stuff that requires rote memorization. I don't believe that, that the you know, the American allergy to rote memorization is helping. But after junior high, Chinese schools start teaching t- toward the college entrance exam, the gaokao, and it, it is a very, very narrow, you know, To me, a pedagogically objectionable approach. So we'd always planned on getting the kids out when they started junior high. So that was always in the plan. That was the entire reason, because I had a really good life there. There's no other reason for me to leave.
0: Got it. So um, back to the situation in China. So I want to tell you about tell you an anecdote, and then maybe have your reaction to it. So back in about 2007. I was with a team of academics. The leader of this team was actually a fields medalist, a mathematician from Harvard who's Chinese, and you can figure out instantly who it is. Okay. <laughs> and we were we were brought to China by Alibaba to consult. Actually, I guess, guess this was 2009, because okay. Alibaba had correctly predicted the financial crisis by looking at its own data and seeing all kinds of crazy stuff happening, and they warned the central party that something was happening, and because Jack Ma is pretty well connected, the Chinese were able to actually prepare a little bit, or they had, they had better warning of it than the American government. And so Alibaba realized that the data that they had access to was really valuable, and they wanted to set up an institute with academics, math people, computer science people to look at this data. So we traveled all around and did various things. One of the dinners that we had was with the dean of the Tsinghua Business School. Mm-hmm. who I think was a party member very super connected we were being escorted around by the I think the, the the CTO of Alibaba at the time and I remember a dinner conversation where we talked about whether anything like Mao or the cultural revolution could happen again and everyone with very high conviction said no people still remember the cultural revolution the rules for succession now are very clear and they will be followed now I guess we now know that that's not true, and someone like she can appoint himself, you know, uh, premier for life. So the people who m- you might have expected to have the most understanding of the inner workings of the system were, as far as I can tell,
1: completely wrong. I, I mean, I think there's you're conflating a couple of things here. First of all, I mean, the succession issue has nothing to do with the Cultural Revolution. Sure, I think there there are a lot of people who rightfully, you know, rightly object to she's having eliminated one of these know, few institutional constraints on on the power at the, the very top. This whole whole thing, but this does not mean it's the Cultural Revolution. Uh, the Cultural Revolution, if anything, it, it was an anti-party move by by one man. Xi has done something very different. He has strengthened the control of, and the the sort of the institutional vigor of the party. Mao cut its legs out from under it. Mao. Yeah. Destroyed the party.
0: I maybe didn't explain the logic correctly. So, what I think was being said was that because people remembered what it was, could still remember, it was within living memory what it was like to have an all powerful ruler like Mao, the party would follow rules which limited the power. Of the chief executive, and hmm. that that turned out to be seemingly easily swept aside. Although maybe she had to do a lot of maneuvering to really get that through. But in any case, though they would have predicted that the state that we're in now was very, very improbable. Let me put it that way.
2: Is it is it true that people expect she to actually stay in power forever? People I've talked to think that this is partly PR. The guy would probably step down within ten years. Well, it's yeah, a long time, yeah, 10, 10 I, more years. I, I
1: don't I don't think he's going to be a doddering 90-year-old and he'll still be No, I don't think that's going to happen.
0: The issue was that at the time and even now there so at the time there were discussions about is there a China model of governance? Not just China model for industrialization or economic development but for governance in which you could have a kind of authoritarian system but they would follow their own rules. And people kind of believed that that could be the case, but now it seems, at least the narrative that's told in the United States is that, no, now it's kind of, once again, the instability toward having a strong emperor uh, has happened, and those people would not have predicted that this was possible so soon.
2: So that's what, I mean, the, the few people I've been talking to question, right, China kind of said, well, they think the U.S. narrative is actually not correct. And this picture of him sweeping away the constraints is actually not fully correct. Good.
1: Yeah, I, I would I would tend to actually agree with Corey. I think that that it's been exaggerated the extent to which he has truly swept away any, you know, any any checks on his his power. He certainly has arrogated to himself a lot more power, well, certainly than his immediate predecessor. I mean, we are comparing it right now to you know Hu Jintao and Wen where it was during the, the you know the 2003 to 2012 period that was quite deliberately. A collective leadership. It was they. They were at best primus inter Paris. There were very, very powerful other figures, uh, not just within the Politburo Standing Committee, but just you know beginning with the Politburo Standing Committee, and that became quite obvious by 2012 when he was actually challenged, as we now know, very, very seriously by other power centers within the upper echelons of the party. What we're seeing now in, is in large part a reaction to that anomalous situation. We're seeing a correction to that. That, they think, in their internal analysis, was a near-death experience. They think that, you know, that that cannot be allowed to happen again. That happened because, uh, I you know, they would, in their analysis, there was, you know, too much faith placed in this idea that a, a collective leadership could keep, you know, keep the ship running smoothly. They don't. They no longer really. A lot of people do, do not have faith in that idea because you look at what happened during that time. This was the period where where corruption really, really, really took off. You had interest groups that were quite powerful that were based in major industrial areas. Like, I'm not geographies, but in the petroleum industry, for example, that produced this guy Joe Yong Kang, who was one of the the major members of this cabal that really sought to unseat. See, uh, so I I kind of get I kind of get why they felt it was necessary to do this, and they look around in the international environment and believe that shaky leadership transitions right now would be really really unwise. Because I mean, l- look around you. Uh, they they believe that China is in an almost unprecedentedly hostile environment. I don't agree with a lot of their their assessment, but we have to l- be able to think ourselves into their heads and see the world as they do. I mean, that's a core tenet of my belief. That's how you watch China, as you learn to see how the Chinese leadership sees the world.
0: Yeah, I don't think it's crazy for them to be worried about external threats. Or internal ones. Yeah, or internal ones. How do you view the current situation between the US and China? To me, it seemed like sort of toward the end of Obama. There was finally a realization that this is a true strategic competitor, and we need to start actually thinking seriously about it. And now, of course, Trump has brought people like Navarro in, who are you know rapidly anti-China.
1: Sure, Pillsbury, Lighthizer, Navarro—all yeah. I mean, Matt Pottinger—all these yeah.
0: We feel it at the university, so of course they want. There's pressure to shut down all <laughs> yeah. the Confucius centers. There's pressure to tightly monitor Chinese researchers when they come on campus, and so it's no, there's no telling where it could really head. Curious what uh, you think.
1: Yeah, this is this is you know the big issue, of course, of our time. I don't think that we're we should be careful about deploying words like Cold War, but you know we're in a perilous perilous situation right now when it comes to our relationship with China at a time when bilateral cooperation is more necessary than ever to address any number of really important global issues that we face. First and foremost, of course, climate change. But uh, this is a it's a it's a tragedy right now you know china for has has really managed to throw some serious cognitive dissonance at the united states a couple of times now i mean really three three times that i can think of. one one of course was you know it was almost axiomatic for us that you're not supposed to be able to be uh, a flourishing free market economy under an authoritarian political you know rule but china was exactly that so that threw us for a loop then you weren't supposed to be able to innovate, of course, if you didn't have total freedom of free-flowing information. in China, with its notorious internet censorship, which is very real, uh, with all its constraints on academic research, which are very real, wasn't supposed to be innovative. And somehow that narrative has flipped completely. And we now think of China as, you know, threatening to eat our lunch in terms of innovation that, you know, it's going to beat us, to deploying quantum computing, it's beating us in the rail gun. It's beating us in CRISPR-Cas9. It's beating us in in self-driving cars or in in, which is you know just I mean I don't I think most of that's nonsense. So it just keeps doing this to to us and and that one in particular, that's one of the sort of sturdier bastions of of, of American exceptionalism.
0: You know that last transition from saying oh the various limitations they have whether it's lack of political freedom or lack of internet. Freedom will keep them from innovating. I think that just went down in the last few years. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Just like three years. Yeah, it's crazy. Joe Biden and Carly Fiorina were. were, It was a big talking point for them on their in their campaign. Or Biden was giving you know speeches saying how you know China will never innovate because it's not free. Carly Fiorina was saying, "Hey, show me one thing that the Chinese have ever innovated." And
0: yeah, and I think it's amazing that that was still a pretty widely held belief uh, just a few years ago, and now I, I you know obviously you know, pendulums tend to swing over-correct and swing too far, but now it's pretty clear that uh, there are many things that they're innovating on. So I think it's amazing how fast that storyline faded away, and I think actually you would have to be crazy to think that they're not going to be a strategic competitor going forward. Recently, I was in Silicon Valley talking to some AI researchers and Chinese AI researchers, and one of the things that came up was there's a consistent or persistent discussion in these sort of Chinese tech communities as to whether it is basically too late for the United States now. So, so the economy in China is big enough, enough of the key technologies they have mastered. You have to count very carefully the ones that they're still struggling to master. And so therefore, even if Trump threw everything at them, it would be a rough decade, but they feel pretty confident they would actually win out in the end. And that, that's an
1: interesting mindset it'd be hard to identify ones in which they're hopelessly behind. Look, the the whole ZTE episode did lay lay bare what some of those gaps still are. There are some gaps. But yeah, I I actually think that the advantages that China has right now cuz look, I mean, I do basically buy the idea that in artificial intelligence right now, with especially with with deep learning, we're not in the age of innovation right now, we're in the age of implementation and the data that Chinese tech companies have amassed is going to be a, a significant competitive advantage. You know, we were talking about Shenzhen, you visited in the early 90s when it was still just dirt roads, but you go there now and there are there are whole buildings devoted to components for specific products, like for drones, a whole building where you can buy rotors, you can buy, you know, service, you can buy all the different things that you would need to build drones. And just down the street are, you know, ODMs and OEMs that, Will make your drone for you. you. You, there are design shops there. If I lived in Shenzhen, I'd be sitting on top of the supply chain for most of the consumer electronics in the world right now. That is a huge advantage for China. It cannot be underestimated. We don't have that in the United States anymore. When people talk about recreating a supply chain, you know, or I, I on my show, I had a gentleman named Paul Triolo and a woman named Sam Sachs who are uh, just brilliant, and and Paul. Who, who worked for the government for one of the three letter bureaus for a very, very long time. He's a very, very smart guy. He, he now works for the Eurasia Group and his group warns about innovation winter. This concept, you're going to hear it a lot. If we try to decouple from China and to go our own way with supply chains, it doesn't matter where we want to try to build them. It will take not only a lot of time, but enormous resources and manpower. And that comes from somewhere. That comes at, the it crowds out inevitably it's going to crowd out r&d spending it's going to crowd out innovation we are going to suffer for it meanwhile china will close whatever gaps remain and plow forward i think the best competitive strategy for the united states right now is to continue to engage with china on on things like that recognize that it is a strategic competitor and with that in mind let's compete smart let's not compete stupid Right now, we we have to recognize that we are dependent on Chinese supply supply chains. And when I say supply chains, I'm not just talking about these these factories with their advanced robotics, not just the labor force. I'm talking about very sophisticated, you know, logistics networks that span the whole region, Southeast Asia.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's there's nothing like those whole ecosystems, which go from design all the way to production at scale. You know, very rapidly. In southern China. Nowhere so, else in the world. Yeah. yeah. I think the one thing that um, the real China hawks like Navarro or Gordon Chang, I'm sure you know who that is. I um, sure do. What they really rely on is, the, I think they have to rely on now, is some idea of fragility. So yes, these guys are formidable, there's no taking them lightly, but maybe because of the in- intrinsic nature of their politics or the s- structure of the society that there's some fragility, and if we just put pressure on them the whole thing can just fall like a house of cards. I'm curious
1: how you feel, how plausible you find that. I wonder if there's any evidence for that at all. I've often heard that argument advanced, that it's brittle, it's ultimately brittle, uh, that all authoritarian systems are. But what I continue to see, and I I would, you know, I, I am no fan. I would love to see China become a much more deliberative and participatory and, you know, plural system. But I think the evidence before my eyes suggests not brittleness, but pretty admirable resilience, that they they are the masters of muddling through, that they are very, very good at it. It's an enormous, enormous organization. And, you know, you guys are scientists. Organisms, when we look at their competitive advantages evolutionarily against one another, we look at how how they utilize energy, right? And it for any Martian looking at the politics of the United States and China, one thing is, is it's got to be pretty obvious is how much of our conscious energy Americans are now putting into internecine strife that doesn't advance us, where they look at they look across the Pacific at China, at this other sort of comparably sized geographically and economically country, and they, they don't see that happening there. Yeah, I think the
0: two instabilities would be here. Maybe we're, I don't know how close we actually are, but you could imagine we could have a kind of civil war, because the society seems to be divided 50-50 almost between, yeah. you know, Yeah, I don't believe second- that either, but yeah, uh, not that, I mean, we're not that, so reliable. That's, that's overhyped. You yeah, live in the Midwest. I, yeah. I
2: see very little strife.
0: No, I'm not I, I'm not saying that's plausible, but I'm saying if you wanted to tell a story about the weakness of the U.S. political system, maybe right, we're kind right. of... You, you
1: maybe could construct one. But that's right. the other thing that I'm really, you know, constantly railing against is this this whole declinist narrative about the United States. I, I just think it's it's it may be useful, <laughs> I suppose, but it's just not true.
0: Yeah, I don't I don't know that we're declining so much as we have a very energetic competitor and That's right. The Soviet Union was energetic in producing weapons, but economically it was clear they were never in our league.
1: That's right. What did we ever buy? What did the world right. want besides, you know? Yeah, I mean, we liked the Bolshoi and Brishnikov, We liked Stolichnaya and beluga caviar.
2: Yeah, Obama made the same thing with modern Russia. They don't make anything. Still true. Yeah, they, they make They're petroleum. they good, weapons. <laughs> good weapons. We have weapons and pumping oil. Yeah. Right,
1: yeah. And that's nothing. Yeah, I mean, we've not had a pure competitor before. I mean, that's what we're really going through right now. Right. And we, we can be sensible about it or we can be morons about it. Another
0: point I would make is that if we want to have a protracted cold war with China, you have to remember that their people are used to a much lower standard of living. So un- unless they are, it's the 6% or 7% growth rate that they're addicted to, and so if you were to shut that off, then there'd be some political unrest, unless that's your thesis, uh, grinding it out against them is not a great thing to do because their people are used to dealing with a lot you know more hardship than people here sure yeah absolutely
2: yeah, they're much less likely to punish their leaders for and much ab- less able to do it less able to yeah yet, if, more if to the their point. <laughs> growth rate
0: drops systematically below 6 or 7% a year that's bad because they're used to that now but if they can point to Trump and say oh it's actually the Americans fault that our gdp growth rate dropped then politically it doesn't look like it's necessarily a losing game for their leadership they may just you know people may just double down and say Hey, it's it's we gotta stick together. These Westerners are trying to take us down again.
1: Yeah. I mean, ten years ago, they were very easily able to do that to point to how the West had bungled its stewardship of the global financial order. They just absolutely bungled it. And, you know, China put a trillion dollars of stimulus into its economy and rode this thing out. I mean, they're, you know, it's kicking the can down the road a bit now and the debt problem that's resulted from it. But it looks quite survivable right now. Another another you know bad round. Although, I mean, I, I guess I'm pretty optimistic right now. He's Trump is talking about meeting Xi at Mar-a-Lago in March, and it looks like he's he's sort of in the mood to make a deal. I I think that that I've read a couple of, of things, you know, now that he's walked out of, of talks with with Kim Jong Un, that this was sort of meant as a warning for Beijing that he's able to do the same with them. But I, I'm that's not not what I'm sensing.
0: You know, it's interesting because the main China hawk people in the Trump administration like Navarro and people like this, they don't have any constituency in Washington, whereas lobbyists for U.S. companies, people that, you know, the the market itself, like you see what the market does every time, it looks like there really is going to be a full-blown trade war. There are many, many forces pushing Trump to be moderate in these negotiations with China, and only a few forces, actually, that are pushing him to be uh, really tough. So for them to actually slap this 25% tariff on $200 billion worth of trade, the market would tank immediately. And you know, who would give solace to Trump? Peter Navarro? I mean, it's 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 just the political economy that looks very strange to me.
1: I really hope you're right, Stephen,
2: I really hope you're right. Kaiser, if you could make, I mean, I just want to hear your perspective, you could make some recommendations to the Trump
0: administration.
2: What do you suggest they do in relationship to China?
0: Resign. <laughs> <laughs> Let me reformulate slightly. So imagine that you're the leader of the United States and you have you feel like you have to take at least some slight risk-averse attitude toward China because if they do get way ahead well, of us... I do believe that, yeah. Yeah, say their GDP gets uh, to be twice ours or 1.5 times ours and they're not nice, okay? If you have to guard against that tail risk,
1: what would you do? So I think one thing that I would do is I would really, really do- start doubling down on my existing my, my existing diplomatic relations, my alliances. I would, look, what, one of the, the, the effects that we've seen of Trump's hostility toward China, not just China, other trade partners, is we've driven Shinzo Abe and Xi Jinping back into one another's arms. People have, it's been reported on, but only very little, but it's something that, that the Japanese press is talking about all the time. There is this like full-blown rapprochement happening right now between China and Japan. And what, what's driving that? the trade hostility that both of them are feeling, uh, toward vis a vis the United States. Both of them, you know, they're large trade partners, the United States, right? So they're 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 moving into one another's arms. We run the same risk with South Korea. We don't seem to be handling our, our close alliances very well at all. Look at what happened recently, just I mean, I don't agree with, with what Trump's trying to do with Huawei, but we've seen two key defections within our closest NATO allies right now with the UK and and Germany, both now saying they will allow Huawei to build critical components in their networks.
0: Yeah, this whole Huawei 5G story is, is kind of nuts.
1: It's I remarkable. Mean, it, right? Yeah. I like an, an idea, I mean, because so much of it does boil down to technology, and there are other issues that we can talk about, but when it comes to the, the tech Cold War, uh, th- an idea that I'm enamored with is small yard high fence. We need to just make a more realistic assessment of what belongs inside the fence and what we cannot hope to include inside the fence. And the things that we cannot hope to include are all these, what things that we're currently calling dual-use technologies. Look, so uh, some of these things are out of the out of the bag already, and there's no out of the bottle. No way we're going to put the, put them back in. In fact, I'm not even really sure beyond a few weapon systems. What should really go in the small yard with a very, very high fence right now? I think that that basically, if I could just slap sense into Trump, it would just be to stop thinking about simplistic, idiotic metrics like our our, our trade deficit with China as a, a, a means of gauging the health of this economy versus the health of theirs. No serious economist would, would view that as a reasonable metric to look at. It just, it wouldn't happen. The other is that I just stop seeing everything as zero sum. It's just moronic. It is not, you know, competition. It is competition, but it is not a zero sum competition. Stop embarrassing yourself. Look, look Get back onto TPP. That's a, that's another thing. That's just like
0: yeah, I think if if Trump hadn't scrapped TPP, that would have been one of the most formidable. Um, that's right. Uh, weapons to use against China, actually. That's so- that's absolutely
1: right. I don't like to think in terms of weapons against China. Part of what I don't like about TPP was how it was so, you know, arrayed against China and how it included, let's, let's, let's be really honest here, standards that were in, intended to exclude China that many other TPP members were simply not held to. Whether they're labor or environmental standards, many other TPP members are in flagrant violation of those standards, but they're not being held to account because the design of that agreement was intended mainly to exclude China. That's a narrative that actually
2: I hadn't heard before. I think
1: Oh, uh, yeah, check it out. <laughs> Hear it here first. So what I'm doing right now is I've convened uh, a group of my friends and I have we're, we're getting a group together that we're calling the Next 40. The idea of the Next 40 is to to try to, you know, build a new foundation for the next 40 years of the US-China relationship. And so the people that we've we've roped into this include a lot of people who, well, frankly, who've been on the show before, but include some very high-ranking diplomats. Including the former assistant secretary of state, the acting assistant secretary of state for East Asia Pacific affairs, Susan Thornton, uh, Dave Rank, who was the chargé d'affaires of the Chinese the U.S. embassy in China until he quit because of Trump's decision to pull out of the Paris Accord. We have you know, serious like very very respected environmentalists, very respected people who study national defense and security, people who work on human rights, a lot of technologists, uh, people who are interested in bringing more light and less heat to conversations, who have, you know, no a priori assumptions about whether it's dovish or hawkish policies that are are best to advance our interests, but have American interests in mind first, not America first, but, but who do not believe that advancing American interests necessarily means thwarting China, that it's possible to advance together. So this this new organization, it's very very new. We will be putting out a pretty substantial policy paper toward the end of this year, that will be intended to get into the hands of presidential campaign staffs, of course, into the hands of you know key Senate and 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 House committee members and their staffs, and into the broader China watching and academic and the media communities. I we really want to jumpstart a new, smarter conversation on China that transcends all this nonsense about dragon slayers and panda huggers, and it just brings in sensible people who are true experts in their fields to have serious, thoughtful conversations about policies, to enumerate actual policies, to identify the correct policy actors to implement those policies. That's what we're trying to do. So, I mean, it's my life's work, really. Uh, it's what I'm now embarked on.
0: I, I think it's a great idea, and it's sorely needed. You know, I, I think if you, even if you go to places like Brookings or, you know, large think tanks, the concentration of people who really know what they're talking about, because this is such a complicated issue, it isn't really high enough, I think, for them to really get where they need to go. And so pulling together people who actually really are have a deep level of familiarity with both countries, I think, is really uh, valuable.
1: Yeah, it's actually one of the criteria is everyone in our group has lived in China, and we, we need that. We need people with skin in the game and an appreciation for what's actually at stake. I don't want you know keyboard warriors who who just sort of you know toss off these these you know these missives into into the ether and and play at you know hard ass right uh, you know who who I don't you know people who are cavalier when they're talking about literally millions of lives. No, none of that. We want people with a real sense of the stakes. You know, if anyone wants to get in touch, you can always find me at kaiser.quo at gmail.com. Uh, we're very, very excited about this initiative. We have gathered what I think is a dream team. Uh, we're going to do an offsite or sort of something outside of D.C. where we'll be, you know, really hammering out over the course of a working weekend exactly what goes into this. And that will happen probably uh, in October. Great. So a lot of preparation before that.
0: Well keep me posted. I would be interested in helping
1: out. I sure will, Stephen. Thank you. Great. And Corey. Thank you. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I'd love to hear more. Absolutely. One last question. Are there any uh other presidential candidates um the Democrats are the ones who announced so far who seem like they have, from your point of view, kind of their head screwed on right as regards to China?
1: So I, I've I know there are a couple who have their heads screwed on wrong so far, but I'm not going to name names. The one person who I have a lot of Confidence in is somebody who I actually met while she was in China and seemed extremely sensible. She was at that time, I believe she was not yet Attorney General. No, she wasn't. She was uh, District Attorney it was Kamala Harris, of course, who, as a Californian, uh, I spent a lot of time in California myself. I think that people in the state government of California really, uh, really know what's going on. Jerry Brown, for example. The, the ex-governor was one of the, the the smartest people when it came to on understanding how at a sub-national level at a state level the relationship with China could continue despite what's what the chill that we've seen uh in the air he's he's done a tremendous job so I, I'm I'm I really like Kamala Harris so far
2: you know it's really interesting I spent about 10 years on the west coast and I have to say that it made me really aware of the heterogeneity in the US because, in many ways, I spent about four years in Seattle. Seattle was as much connected to the Pacific Rim, maybe more so right. than it actually felt connected to Washington, D.C. You had a lot of news out of the Pacific Rim, a lot of news about China That's and right. Japan. And there was a sense that Washington, D.C. was just this place very, very far away. I mean, people couldn't quite figure out. Distant. How that place had so much to say over our lives, you know,
1: distant capital. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder the same thing all the time.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, uh. it really gave me an awareness of a lot of the sort of, kind of, survivalist types out of Washington State because they just they just seem to be this feeling that there's this distant capital dictating to us and our interests were probably someplace else. It's fascinating. It kind of get me, it helped me see the world through sort of different perspective when I saw how people thought about the state. I'm from the East Coast, and I I just you know from the East Coast back then, Seattle was some Podunk out there, you know? <laughs> Things have totally changed uh, since then. But
1: I, yeah, don't, I totally yeah, get what you're saying
2: yeah. about people, the West Coast uh, politicians having much better sense.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's really been my experience. I mean, people like Rick Larson from state of Washington. I mean, you know, the ex governor Gary Locke, who was, yeah, Gary Locke, who is, of course, ethnically Chinese himself. And he is, uh, yeah, he was ambassador, of course, to China for a while. All right. We are. I'm being told we're running out of time. This is a
0: terrifically fun conversation. Yeah, thanks, Kaiser. It's it's been really, really wonderful. Yeah, we'd love to have you back anytime. Um, I think you and I are both at South by Southwest in. Oh yeah. Well, so I will.
1: I will. Let's let's uh, make sure to have a beer while yeah, we're there. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I'm buying. Okay. All right, Steve. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Kaiser. And uh, thank you. Wish both. you best of luck, and hope to talk to you again soon. Okay. Take care. Okay. Bye.